three and a half months, I think, now, we have been looking at the Psalms and using the Psalter and the Psalmists as a sort of trail map, trail guide for our souls. And as we have explored our own souls, we have found this guide and this process, I hope, to be sometimes restful and joyful and encouraging as we've been able to focus in a particular way, taking our souls before the Lord, asking Him for more love, more grace, more comfort to be found in Him. But other times in this journey of our own souls, I suspect that for you, as it has been for me, it has been troubling and confusing at points along the way as we work our way through the muck that is found within our souls. It would be nice to think that our souls are pure and spotless, but if you've done anything over the course of the last couple of months, if you've even listened to what is written by the psalmist, we know that's not the case. And so we have joined the psalmists as they have been in the depths, in the pit, as they've been sinking and anxious about their lives. They've been at times, think Psalm uh, 73 here for a moment, envious. Or in Psalm 130, they've been guilt-ridden. Or thinking back to Psalm 73, where Asaph describes himself as brutish and ignorant before the Lord when he was stuck in his sin. We've been all over the place with them. The soul or the heart, infected as it is with sin, has become both desperately sick and at the same time dizzyingly complex as we try to think about our lives and think about what am I thinking right now? Why am I thinking this or what am I doing and what's my motivation for doing this? What's going on inside of my heart and my soul at any particular moment? Today, we come with that to Psalm 131. And my hope as we come to Psalm 31 is that we kind of push through some of that bewilderment, some of the complexity that we have had, and we return to something that is a bit more clear and a bit more simple and straightforward. Now, I said push through. Maybe it would be better for us to say that we're dragged out of the muck. So we're in the midst of the muck. We're wounded. We're bleeding. We're tired. And, and Christ, working through the Holy Spirit, comes in and drags us out of the muck of our own souls and brings us to a place of comfort and of rest, of contentment, and of simplicity. He starts, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. So writes the king of Israel. So writes the one who sat on the throne of our Lord Jesus Christ, at least as it was on earth. 
So writes the one who is the poet of Israel, the theologian of Israel, who as a king thinks about all sorts of things in terms of governing people, international relationships, internal intrigue, how do you feed and care for people? How do you design the palace? How do you provide for the future temple to be built? How do you govern a people well? It is not a lowly person who wrote Psalm 131. And that is important because it speaks to us. What it basically says to us is that it doesn't actually matter what position we occupy. We may occupy, and none of us are kings, obviously, we may occupy in this world a high position where we have influence, where we're highly regarded because of our professional life or our standing within a community or whatever it is has given us some level of influence in a way that David had. Conversely, we may not. We may have a very low position in this world uh, and not have a lot of influence over anything that's going on around us. And if I could take two people in Scripture to represent these two extremes, let's do David on the one hand, and let's consider Mary on the other hand. As two examples, a person who was the king and a person who everybody else would have overlooked, Mary. And yet, both of them, both of them have this same characteristic inside of them. They're gentle, they're humble, they're lowly of heart. And so, whatever our station is in life, it is both possible and good for us to have and to practice a humble spirit, a restrained spirit in the way that David speaks of it here. A couple of weeks ago, uh, I had a week of vacation, uh, and uh, we went down to an old home church of ours, Timonium Presbyterian Church, uh, north of Baltimore. And while I was there, uh, while we were there, we, we got to see our old friend Jim Bob. Uh, Bob is his last name. And if I've mentioned Jim before in a sermon, forgive me, I, I, I think of him every time I see him, and I thought of him with relation to uh, this, this sermon. Jim is retired now. Uh, he and I served on the session of that church together in another lifetime. Uh, and, and at that time, he was the president of a hospital in Baltimore normal hospital, a significant, but a normal hospital in Baltimore. And he had a high position. One day I went down and was joining him for lunch. And as I came in, I went to the desk and I said that I'm here to have lunch with Jim Bob. And there was kind of an, an awe that immediately happened. You're having lunch with Jim Bob. And I, I was escorted to an elevator where a security guard took me up in an elevator that went up to the executive offices. And he said, you know, do you know Mr. Bob? Yeah, we're, I'm friends with Mr. Bob. We go to the same church. Uh, and he said, oh, he's just a great guy. And Jim proceeded to take me on a tour of the hospital. And as you go through the hospital, you meet all sorts of people, from the neurosurgeons to the people who are cleaning rooms in the hospital. And I kid you not, it had to be... I, I, 
I don't want to say how long ago it was. Well, let's just say it was about 25 years ago, and I can still remember it, that each person that we bumped into along the way, he was able to greet them by name, and not only greet them by name, but say something like, how was your vacation? Or how is your marriage or this children? Or I know you were, were struggling with this. It was remarkable to be with this man before we sat down for lunch in the hospital cafeteria. An influential man who had a humble spirit and desired to love God well, to love his neighbor well, and to do his work that God had given to him at this particular hospital and do it well. That's what David is practicing as he writes this psalm. The world is complex. The soul is complicated. Theology can be confusing. Now, I wasn't there for Sunday school today, but it was confusing enough in our communicants class. And over the past couple of, well, weeks and months, we've looked at the Westminster Confession of Faith, and we've looked at Galatians, and it seems to us that those are confusing as you're trying to figure out what do they mean? What is Paul trying to say here? What are the Westminster divines trying to say with this complicated sentence? God is God, and I am man, and David reflects on the difference between those two things, between dust and the creator of all things. In Psalm 139, David, in reflecting, of course, on the omniscience, on the omnipresence of God, reflects on it and says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's just too high. I cannot attain it. And that's the same kind of attitude that he takes now as he's describing himself here in Psalm 131. Instead of being prideful and haughty, don't you know I'm the king? Don't you know I'm the songwriter? Don't you know I'm one of the leading theologians within Israel right now? He says, no, I, I, I don't have an answer for everything. David recognizes that even, despite his position, he has a prerogative, a right. And the right is to be confused. The right is, the prerogative is to not know the answer sometimes. To say, I can't figure out all of the mysteries of God. I can't get all of the complexities of God. He not only has the right and the prerogative to do that, he has the necessity of doing that. He not only has to look out at the souls of his nation, but he has to look after his own soul as well. He has the necessity then of sometimes getting off of the merry-go-round and sitting at the feet of Jesus and saying, this is actually the one thing I need. I just need to sit down right now at the feet of Jesus and enjoy him. It is a similar place to which Job comes. For nearly 40 chapters of Job, of course, there is a back and forth. There's a discussion trying to understand God, trying to understand God's ways in the world, Job's counselors and Job himself, until it finally comes to an end, if you know the story, with the questions that come from God. 
And in the last chapter of the book, Job is able to say this, therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. There was a lot he could know. There was a lot he and his friends thought they knew, thought they could understand, thought they could explain about God. But it comes to the point where David is of saying, nope, there are things too wonderful for me. They're too high for me. They're too complex for me. And I need to be silent before God. Today is June 5th. I don't know anything in particular of significance that takes place on June 5th, except that June 5th is, of course, between graduations. So college graduations have already, for the most part, taken place. And uh, either this weekend or last weekend or in the weekends to come, uh, high school graduations will begin. And of course, that means it is also the time uh, and the season for graduation speeches, uh, for commencement addresses, where every generation is told that they are the brightest generation ever. They are the most special group of people to have ever graduated from this high school, from this university. The future is limitless. Pursue your dreams. Aim for the stars. Change the world. I want you to listen to words from about 450 years ago as kind of a counterbalance, a little bit of a, a little bit of a counterweight to inflated graduation cliches, and this is reflecting on exactly the psalm that we're reading right now. David had been made head over God's people, and in order to prove that he was their lawful prince, entitled to the allegiance of the faithful, he is desirous to show that he had not been influenced in anything which he had attempted by ambition or pride, but had submitted himself with a quiet and humble spirit to the divine disposal. How did he get to be king? Was he sitting in the fields, watching over his sheep, thinking, this is going to be the strategy that I'll take. I got to get a super PAC. I got to take steps up along the process. I've got to meet the right people. And in that way, I might just get to become the king. And the answer is no. He had submitted himself with a quiet and humble spirit to the divine disposal. It was not his ambition to be the king, a lesson that others could learn. In this, reading again, he teaches us a very useful lesson and one by which we should be ruled in life, to be contented with the lot which God has marked out for us to consider what he calls us to do and not to aim at fashioning our own lot, to be moderate in our desires, to avoid entering upon rash undertakings and to confine ourselves cheerfully within our own sphere instead of attempting great things. I bet that's not quoted in any graduation speech. The writer continues, the great object that David had 
was that of being serviceable to God and to the church. Now, mind you, that one psalm and even what I've just quoted for us, this, this is not a call to sloth. It's not a call to be lazy. Kids, don't turn to your parents and say, see, I didn't have to study. Pastor just said I should be content with where I am in life right now. I shouldn't pursue other things. This is not a call to foolishness or to stupidity or anti-intellectualism. But it is a call to moderation. It is that. And it is a call to keep and to guard what God has appointed to you with the gifts that you have, the callings that you have, the relationships that you have, to guard that. Uh, that, what I just read for you, was 450 or so years old. I want to read to you now something 600 years old from, uh, as you know, a favorite of mine, The Imitation of Christ. A pious and humble inquiry after truth is tolerable, which is always ready to be taught and studies to walk in the sound doctrine of the fathers. Blessed is that simplicity that leaveth the difficult ways of dispute and goeth on in the plain and sure path of God's commandments. Many have lost devotion whilst they would search into high things. Faith is required of thee, and a sincere life, not the height of understanding or diving deep into the mysteries of God. Submit thyself to God, and humble thy senses to faith, and the light of knowledge shall be given thee, as far as shall be profitable and necessary for thee. This was the original question to mankind. How will you pursue wisdom? How will you pursue knowledge? Will you trust me to give it to you, or will you take matters into your own hand? Will you take of the tree of knowledge, or will you trust that I will not withhold any good gift from you? Learn from me. I'm gentle and humble in heart. That's the one we learn from. Pursue excellence and love and growth, but pursue it within the calling that God has given to you. And don't foster discontentment in your life by pining after someone else's calling, by pining and longing for circumstances that are different than the present circumstances in which we find ourselves. Life will be better when I'm stuck in this job, and I hate it. I'm stuck in this stage of life, and there's no way out for another 20 years. Don't fritter away today's calmness of soul, pining after tomorrow's plans for you to change your life. Don't fritter away today's calmness of soul. Someone once said, 
Don't worry about tomorrow. It'll be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Verse 2, but I have calmed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. Now, I don't know about you, but there are two words that I would love to apply to my soul, and they are calm and quiet. I would love to be able to say on a regular basis that my soul before the Lord, my soul walking through life is calmed and it is quieted. It's a foretaste of the eternal rest that we are going to have with Jesus. And David rounds it out by giving us this simile. He gives us this picture of the words that he's just said. What is a calmed and quieted soul like? Well, it is like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. This, uh, this idea of being a weaned child, it, it, it could ha- it, there's a little bit, it's a little bit nuanced. It could mean one of two things. It could mean weaned in the sense that we think of a weaned child. That is a child who has completed the nursing phase of his or her life and uh, is now not nursing anymore. It could also be a way of referring to a, a, a child who has just finished nursing, not nursing forever, but just a particular time of nursing. So it, it could be either one of those. But in either case, the picture that David is drawing on here to explain his own calmed and quieted soul is one of satisfaction and contentment. And I know this doesn't always happen in a young child's life, but it happens every once in a while, and it's a picture that we can get into our minds. Every mom and dad knows the nearly indescribable beauty of their child being contented, resting on their mother, perhaps after feeding or, or after being weaned or something like that. It doesn't always happen, but when it does, it's gorgeous. Now, prior to the feeding, there are all sorts of motions that a child goes through in order to communicate, I need something to demand that you satisfy that which I lack. Could be screaming, could be crying, could be kicking, could be moving all about. All sorts of motions that are intended or that are communicating, I'm worried that food has disappeared from the world, that there is a vast famine and food will never come again in my life. What do I do? The soul can be like that. Our souls can have that kind of an attitude where I'm hurt, I'm struggling, I'm aching, I'm hungry, and I'm crying, and I'm screaming, and I'm doing everything I possibly can to let you know that I don't have what I need and I'm worried that it may never come again. We've seen that in the Psalms that we've looked at. To which... Jesus says, come, come, 
you, you aching ones, you hurting ones, you empty of soul ones, come to me. I have all that you need. I have the forgiveness. I have the rest. I have the calmness. I have the peace that you are seeking. I have the food that you are seeking. I have tenderness. I have compassion. I have healing. I have a new heart, and I have a new start for your life. Come. Come to me, you who are restless and soul, and all of these things I will give to you. They are all the gift, the gifts of Jesus. But do note this. They're all the gifts of Jesus, but babies have a role to play. There's a part that they play in this. David says, I have calmed and quieted my soul. And that implies that at least David, at least we, have some small modicum of responsibility in calming our souls and finding a quieted soul. It's very simple. A baby suckles and receives milk. Jesus calms our soul as we nurse. As we take of the pure milk of the Word of God, as we come before Him and all of those, all of those fears that have consumed us, all of the things that I just listed, the anxieties, all of the frustrations, all of the things that are troubling our soul, the loss and the pain and the disappointment, the hurt that other people have caused to us, we nurse as we take those things and we cast them up. And we say, Jesus, I can't handle these things. I can't take these things. I am praying and I'm giving them to you. And he feeds us. He feeds us through the sacraments, the table, the meal that is set for us. Jesus calms our soul. Now, what I'm trying to say here is that we need to avoid extremes. Uh, David says, I have quieted, calmed my soul. We don't want to imply that a quieted, childlike soul is achieved by mere willpower. Like I wake up one day and I say, I, today, am going to be calm. I'm going to have a quieted soul today. It won't be disturbed within me. I can do this. We don't do that. Nor is a calm and quieted soul like some kind of a personality trait. So some people have a calm soul and other people have an anxious soul and there's nothing I can do about that. I got one or the other. Nor is it something that is achieved purely passively where I'm just sitting around just waiting. Jesus, drop it in here at any point. Calmness and quietness into my life. Instead, it comes as it is patiently nurtured by being with Jesus through the ordinary things that he has established. As we conclude this psalm today and try to put 
a, uh, at least a partial conclusion on this series itself. Let me just say that in talking about the childlike soul today, I'm certainly not trying to advocate in any way that we should remain childish, right? All of the scriptures, often in the scriptures, there's the call to grow, the call to become mature, the, the call to put childish ways behind us. We are called to grow in wisdom and knowledge. And indeed, we want to see our souls growing in that, into a deeper understanding of ourselves, into greater maturity, into more love with Jesus. What I am saying, and what I think David is saying here, is that sometimes when our lives are at their hardest points, or when they're at their saddest points, when we're busy and things are complicated, it's at those times that we come back and find peace and quietness and calmness of soul in the most simple of confessions. It's at those times when things drop away and what remains is, God is my Father. And He loves me. And He takes care of me. And He supplies every need that I have, and I can trust Him. I can rest calmly against my Father, like a well-fed child against her mother. The night before Simon's surgery, the Kirkland family was uh, praying together, and I have permission to share the story that I'm about to tell you. Uh, Zoe prayed, and her prayer, of course, I I wasn't there, so this was reported to me by uh, Rebecca. Zoe prayed something like this, God, help the doctors to have wisdom and to do a good job with Simon's surgery. And if in the middle of the surgery they get confused or don't know what to do, help them to ask Daddy because he knows everything. (laughs) Now, Nick's pretty smart, but I'm not sure that Nick is qualified as a consultant to neuroplastic surgeons, anesthesiologists, and all of the other people at CHOP who were doing this surgery on Simon. But you appreciate it, right? You appreciate the simplicity of childlike trust and love. My daddy knows everything. They just need to ask. I don't want to burst anybody's bubble. <laughs> so, uh, but if you're over six, you actually know that your daddy doesn't know everything. But our father does, right? Our father does. He knows everything. He has all of the resources. It's kept for you against the day. It's secured for you against the day. And so we come to him with childlike simplicity, love, and with trust, and we say to our Father, calm my anxious soul. It's troubled. I'm lost. 
I need you to give me calmness. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Your dad knows how you were made. He remembers your frame. He knows that we're dust. He knows that we are rebellious dust. He knows that we're frail and feeble as frail. And therefore, hold on to a promise on the front of your bulletin. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O my soul, to your, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you.